Hello, and welcome to a new podcast for The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today we're going to be discussing cortical white matter demyelination, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Bruce Trapp and Dr. Daniel Antonieda. Uh, gentlemen, please will you introduce yourselves? Yeah, sure, Gavin. This is Bruce Trapp. I'm chairman of the Department of Neuroscience at the Lunar Research Institute at the Cleveland Clinic and director of the Rapid Autopsy Program in the department. My name is Daniel Antoneda. I'm a clinical neurologist at the Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis, also at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, I direct the uh, brain donation program, the clinical director of the brain donation program, um, and involved in MS-MRI research. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. So let's start by talking a little bit about, uh, about white matter demyelination. So what is white matter demyelination in multiple sclerosis, and what, what's its clinical relevance? White matter demyelination is one of the pathological hallmarks of multiple sclerosis, and these lesions occur when immune cells enter from the blood into the brain and destroy the myelin sheath. And when that happens, that brain region changes from a white color to a brown or, or grayish color. So macroscopically, you can see these lesions in tissue slices, uh, macroscopically um, in, uh, of the brain. Yeah, I mean, I would say that traditionally we detect white matter lesions using MRI. Clinically, that's how we do that. The patient presents with neurological symptoms. We do an MRI and we find lesions um, on brain MRI. And I would say that that has aided us significantly in our ability to diagnose MS um, and not only diagnose but also follow the disease. So development of new white matter uh, lesions on MRI, uh, response to treatment that we can follow, um, and allows us to identify the patients that are good responders to therapies and those that aren't good responders. You know, we kind of held that whenever we see a white spot on an MRI, the kind of ground truth has been up until now that those areas are areas where there are where there is uh, demyelination. So that's kind of the background of the relevance of demyelination and white matter lesions. Following on from that, you report in your study the identification of a new subtype of multiple sclerosis. So tell us a little bit about uh, myelocortical multiple sclerosis, and why do you decide to distinguish it, these patients from from other patients? Well, maybe I'll start from the beginning, and it really started in the autopsy suite in slicing a brain, and as I sliced through that brain, it was remarkable that there were no white matter lesions. And so, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is, is this really MS? Well, almost all of these patients are referred to the Mellon Center, and these neurologists uh, rarely get the diagnosis wrong, if ever. Uh, and in fact, these patients did have MS because we could see lesions in the spinal cord. Uh, so here was a case where we had no cerebral white matter lesions, but the patients have MS. So the real question was, well, how common is this? If it was a one-off, it would be a curiosity, but probably not worth a study. So we went back and continued to go forward in looking at the incidence of this in 100 uh, post-mortem uh, MS brains. And we found the lack of cerebral white matter lesions was found in 12% of our patients. That was, we found 12. Um, they did have IMS, and they had demyelination of the spinal cord, and they had subpeel cortical lesions. So therefore, we refer to this subtype as having myelocortical MS. So really what this gave us was a format to address some important questions 
in MS, and one of the primary ones is the role of white matter demyelination in cortical neuronal loss. So what we did was we matched our 12 myelocortical patients with 12 typical MS patients, that is patients that have cerebral white matter lesions, and we matched them based on age, disease duration, uh, disability, uh, gender, postmortem time, and then we analyzed these brains compared to control brains, again age-matched, neuronal densities in the cerebral cortex. Well, I mean, historically it's been thought uh, that demyelination is the, the sole cause of neural degeneration in MS. So by doing this comparison, we're giving a platform to study brains with cerebral white matter demyelination and without. And so if cerebral white matter demyelination is playing a significant role in neuronal loss, then one would expect to see more neuronal loss in typical MS than myelocortical MS. And so we measured neuronal densities in five cortical regions, um, and these five cortical regions were not directly connected to spinal cord, so we can minimize the effect of spinal cord demyelination. And we measured neurons in layers three, five, and six uh, of these five cortical uh, regions. These are the layers of the cortex that project axons into uh, the cerebral white matter. And um, we got the opposite result of what we expected. And what, in fact, we found was there was greater neuronal loss in myelocortical MS than in typical MS. So of those 15 regions compared to control brains, myelocortical had reduced neural densities in 11 layers whereas typical MS had a reduction in only five layers. So um, this provides, I think, pathological evidence that cortical neural loss can be independent of demyelination um, in MS brains. Were there any surprises to you in your study? Well, I mean, I think that one was a big surprise, but there was another, and... Part of our autopsy program, the first thing we do is we do two hours of MRI uh, of the brain in situ. Um, and one of the surprises was that we cannot, could not distinguish the MRIs of the myelocortical patients from the MRIs uh, of typical um, MS patients. And we have a protocol where we can go and... Um, correlate the MRI changes with pathological changes by co-registering the MRIs in the brain slices. And we focused in this study on MRI regions of interest that were altered by T2, T1, and mag transfer ratios. Um, these are considered to be black holes in typical MS. That's chronically demyelinated lesions with reduced axonal density in severe gliosis. We found in the myelocortical MS patients, we found 31 of these T1, T2, MTR altered regions, and all 31 were myelinated. We didn't stop there because the MRIs uh, are telling us there's a, a significant change there, so we continued to look for pathology. 
And what we found was that these regions that were abnormal on T2, T1, and MTR had swollen myelinated axons. And we think that this is likely to be responsible for at least in part of those MRI changes, particularly the T1 and MTR, which are much more sensitive uh, to change or specific to changes uh, in the cerebral uh, white matter. One of the things swollen myelin axons have is an increase in water content. We know that both uh, the T1 uh, hypointensities and um, the MTR are altered by changes uh, in, uh, in free water. In your study, what would you say some of the kind of major limitations are? Well, I, I mean, you, you're always concerned in these uh, of a selection bias. So these are patients that signed up for an autopsy program. And um, in addition to that, they're end-stage uh, disease. So the question of what happens earlier uh, is, is of uh, critical importance. And the question is, is this a biased sample or is this occurring across the population? I have presented uh, aspects of this over the years and uh, certainly been approached by other neuropathologists or those that have autopsy programs stating that they have similar cases in those cohorts. But time's only going to tell whether they come up with the same 12% that we do in their uh, individual brain banks. Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the advantages of having the data collected at the very end of life um, is that it's kind of a cross-sectional snapshot of what's occurred during the entire disease process. So that, on the one hand, I think that's an advantage um, because we um, look at the MS brain throughout its, its life cycle, if one likes. Um, I think the disadvantage is that we're unable to see the disease perhaps in its early forms or when it's starting out. Um, and uh, we're not sure um, what a myelocortical patient would look like um, on pathology um, if identified very early on this disease course. And the question is, are the changes the same as the changes we're seeing at this time, right, at the time of death, or are they somehow different? And I think that gets back to um, the difficulty uh, going forward, which is, you know, ideally we would like to identify these patients while they're still alive and hopefully at the very beginning of the disease. Um, and so certainly that um, is something that we're going to have to address with further studies, but is a clear limitation of, of, of using post-mortem data. Yes, that, uh, that brings me on to my next question. So what are the next steps for both of you in this field? What do you need to do to take these findings forward? Yeah, I, I'll address the pathology and let Dan talk about the imaging. But from the pathological point of view, we're very interested of whether we can find molecular correlates um, of two aspects. One is cortical neurons and is there something different from myelocortical compared to typical or controls in gene profilings in projection neurons in the cerebral cortex? And those studies are, are underway now, no results yet, but we hope to soon. The other area we're interested in is the axonal swellings in the white matter that are producing or correlated with uh, the imaging differences. We know these regions aren't demyelinated. Uh, we don't know um, if the myelin is normal. It could be abnormal. Uh, we don't know all of the aspects of the axonal pathology, so we are trying to develop and 
I think, making good progress on doing electron microscopy of those regions and, of course, also uh, doing molecular analysis and analysis of, um, of the uh, axonal and myelin components within uh, these regions. So what I would say is that from a clinical and an MRI perspective, the two kind of main things that I take away from this study are that, one, uh, we've identified lesions that otherwise we would have considered demyelinating lesions, and we know that some of the patients that we follow in clinic um, probably have myelin, normal myelin content in the white matter. Um, so I think one of the steps forward is um, how can we use these specific subtype of patients to identify contrast um, in MR or some other imaging technique that is sensitive to myelin. Um, and it actually permits us to do that. We can actually start with post-mortem tissue doing MRI, and then we can move that, those development of those MR contrasts um, into humans and hopefully try to reproduce what we see in pathology um, in a live subject. So, I mean, that's um, one aspect. I think the second aspect, and, and perhaps the more interesting one for me, is that um, these patients look like MS patients, like garden variety MS patients, like the patients we see day in and day out in the clinic, and they have normal myelin content. Um, on MRI, their lesions look like the lesions of demyelinated um, multiple sclerosis. And this suggests that because these lesions are indistinguishable on MRI and the clinical features are also indistinguishable, um, and in one group we have demyelination and in the other we don't, perhaps something else is kind of at the base of what we think gives the lesion its typical characteristics. Um, and so uh, precisely Bruce's um, point on what is going on in the pathology of these lesions that are normally myelinated um, is going to be very, very important. And I think, for example, focusing on efforts in trying to determine um, a measurement of axons themselves um, will be useful uh, going forward to, one, identify these patients, and two, understand, I think, the, the basic pathobiology of the disease better. I think one of the other significant repercussions that this work has um, is in its relation to clinical trials. Um, I think on one side, um, the fact that, you know, we have 12, 13% of patients who have normal cerebral myelin in our previous clinical trials of anti-inflammatory therapies um, is a question that one has to wonder about. How does that affect clinical trial results? And I think going forward, um, there's a fair amount of emphasis on remyelinating trials. Um, and so I think this has implications both for patient selection, that is selecting patients hopefully who don't have myelocortical MS, um, and also outcome selection, or if one does, does include myelocortical patients, is it wise to identify primary outcomes um, involving measurement of putative myelin contrast in white matter lesions? Um, and I think that's something that, you know, currently we don't have a solution for, but something that will be very, very important uh, going forward. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. And you can read this paper online now at The Lancet Neurology. Thanks for listening.